You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Sports betting is sweeping across the country faster than the coronavirus, and Wagering Week is your antidote. I'm Tom Martin, and I'm a veteran sports analyst and respected sports handicapper who helped build ESPN's brand. I've been recognized and awarded by Pro Football Weekly and Gaming Today magazine as the honest handicapper. Let the other guys give you the same old boring sports talk with the same tired storylines. We'll give it to you straight here every Friday on Wagering Week. Don't gamble with other podcasts. Let sports garden. Network's Wagering Week help your bottom line. Hello and welcome everybody to episode three of Too Many Lawyers with me, Connor Oaks. And I'm Royal Oaks. We're, we're mixing our numbers here. We've yeah. got Too Many Lawyers, episode three. Yeah. You think that's going to be too confusing for folks? Only for the uh, sub-10 numbered episodes. Soon it will we'll get into the swing of things and it'll be episode 58, I, episode 112. I thought you were going to say only for Republicans. You know, No, I, really I would never par- say par- that. Partisan comment. See, here we are. Uh, that introduces the fundamental dichotomy of this podcast. Uh, I, a, a progressive millennial, and my father, Royal, the uh, libertarian boomer. We've got different opinions, but we bring, uh, we come together on this show to give our legal opinions on legal stories and just political stories and what's in the news these days. Um, Today, we're going to be talking primarily about drug legalization. Uh, It's a topic that's divided America, and we are going to get to the bottom of it. Uh, But first, we've got a correction. Yeah, we do have a formal correction. You know how newspapers have a correction? Oh, yeah. Like, like for example, um, this is a problem from our very first episode, but uh, newspapers, for example, New York Times, uh, I believe... Uh, every week they have a little box and they say, with respect to every editorial mm-hmm. opinion we've expressed mm-hmm. on the last week, we wish to apologize mm-hmm. for being so wrong-headed. Right. So that's the Well, yeah, every time they put uh, David Frum out there, uh, they do have to apologize because he wrote, wrote a column last week uh, entitled, Bernie Can't Win. So, yeah, um, yeah, that, they got to apologize. That, that was from How opinion. wrong the uh, op-ed page so really is. So here's the correction. The very first episode, we were talking about impeachment. We were comparing the Senate trial with the civil or criminal trials, pointing out the big differences. And we were saying, now, you want a trial, you go to My Cousin Vinny, everybody's, every lawyer's favorite movie. Yep. And we were singing the praises of Fred Gwynn, the actor, that tall six-foot-six or seven-foot actor who played the judge in My Cousin Vinny. And Connor, you remember you were noting that uh, boy, he was tremendous in that role. You know, what else has he done? And I was saying, well, what about the TV show, the classic, The Munsters? And I made the mistake 
of referring to him as Fred Munster. Well, that's mixing up Fred Gwynn and Herman Munster. Oh, of course, Herman Munster. Yeah, so that's that's the correction that we So these are the make. most substantive mistakes that we here on Too Many Lawyers make. Uh, nothing more important than that, <laughs> uh, actually. You know, we're, we're just getting into this a series of Too Many Lawyers. This is the episode number three. One of the things, Connor, we need to address is whether to invite guests uh, on, on the show. Yeah. And uh, gosh, the, the world is our oyster. We can That's we true. can actually just invite anybody. We have to be careful, though. Yeah, I, I want to give you a, a little a little story about a problem Rob Marinko and I ran into uh, on KBC Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hosting uh, in for Doug McIntyre, I think, and Rob Marinko was was doing the news. But he he and I were kind of co-hosting, and we were just talking back and forth. And we were preparing to interview a guest, right? And we were lucky enough to get a lady who was the president of the North American Nudist Association. Uh- and so we're talking to her about uh, you know, the lifestyle and you know how it fits into the 21st century. Right. And we were saying she said, well, we have our annual get together, you know, in summer in Florida or something where they, and then we play games. We asked them what do they do. We play yeah. games. We well, we made the mistake of asking her what, what kind of games do you play. Oh. Well, cornholing is our favorite <laughs> game. And, of course, Rob and I lost it, and I believe the interview was completely destroyed. She was very antagonistic. We tried to get her to explain why cornholing of all possible games. It's, don't make it a verb. It yeah. can't be a verb. I don't know. I'm just saying, Ugh. let's think about guests, but there are perils okay. to inviting. So, uh, so Connor, uh, yeah, drug legalization, uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, actually came out, I believe, and said, Let's do it. Yeah. Every Let's single go. drug. Right. Now, I'm the libertarian here, but is this right. something you'd be comfortable with? Ecstasy, methamphetamine? Look, drug legalization has been around as a concept uh, in political life, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, because a lot of countries have decided that the best decision, uh, the best way to solve uh, drug problems, um, places like Portugal have uh, famously um, just, uh, you know, said it's all good. Right. Everything is, is free and open and fine, and there's no worries or problems about about uh, drugs. And then they start enacting programs like uh, clean needle uh, dispensary uh, programs so you don't uh, spread intravenous drugs and all that. And some countries have had success with it. There have also probably been problems. What I'm interested in talking about as a structure for this discussion today is to go through the sort of big three ideas that people usually trot out to talk about drug legalization, the way that the argument is framed and laid out. Because a lot of times people are talking past each other. Right. Because they're talking, one person's talking about uh, one method of argument and the other person is talking about something completely different. Well, isn't, the, isn't the main argument though, are, we're throwing billions down ah, a, a rat hole? The main argument. So right off the bat, we have the, the we, we decide how we weight these things. Mm-hmm. I would say you're right. Where everyone starts, my tax dollars is prohibition of drugs in, in all forms or any forms, is fiscally inefficient. They look at the other alternative. They look at alcohol, and they say, well, we can uh, legalize and regulate it and tax it. We can tax it out the wazoo, and we'll make so much money off of taxing alcohol, which they do. Um, By the way, where is this wazoo that you know, folks talk about? I think it's down south somewhere, and we don't need to— Is it, is it close to the yin-yang? Uh, d- definitely. Definitely. It's right there. So 
This is um, this is the primary argument that everyone uses. And the problem arises when somebody who's not using this argument, who's using one of our other two main arguments for drug or against drug legalization, runs into somebody who's talking about fiscal inefficiency. And then there are two ships passing in the night. They don't even really meet in the middle and understand each other's positions. So number one, prohibition being fiscally inefficient. Number two, you can talk about the outcomes of prohibition. You could say prohibition either does or does not lead to morally wrong outcomes. And then number three, our third pillar of argument here, the way that people approach this discussion, is to say that prohibition, not about outcomes, but prohibition is it's is it's itself inherently morally wrong or is not inherently morally wrong to prohibit uh, drugs in this way. So let's go through these, so uh, basically, the first one you're saying is money. so much money. Right. Second one, does it work or not? Right. And third, moral, you know, what about freedom? And yeah, people can drink exactly. alcohol. Why shouldn't they be able to yeah. smoke marijuana? It's my body. Let's, and let's I face want it, it alcohol is a much bigger scourge for society than marijuana. Absolutely. So so let's start with, with the, the upsides and downsides of the first column, the first category prohibition of drugs being fiscally inefficient. Yeah. It is. I mean, this is—no one would really disagree with this. And I think you, as the libertarian, probably have all the ammo locked and loaded in terms of your feeling on how this is uh, such a wildly— you know, crazy uh, endeavor to try to uh, eliminate. I mean, I'll, I'll refer to the super libertarian, purportedly libertarian, actually super conservative, Cato Institute, your right. favorite institute Absolutely. over there. Who, well, they have come out, and you, you look at their website. It'll go through every single step of the way. How much we spend, the federal budget, on drug prohibition— and how much, I mean, is that where you get your, is that where your primary motivation is to say, this is horrifically f- financially inefficient, we've got to hold the government to account as to its finances, and we're throwing money down a hole? Is that where you basically come from? Well, I think that's an important issue, but of course it isn't the ultimate issue, because let's face it, if, if Russia is saying to us, uh, well, we're, we're going to blow you guys up, and we say, well, no, you're not, because we're going to be outspending you and deter you with our nuclear arsenal. Uh, okay, so it's hugely expensive, but the, the the expense isn't a good reason not to save our lives by building nuclear bombs. It's coupled with the fact that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, people still use drugs uh, regardless of all of uh, all of the effort to stop it. And look at all the fallout that you know. And some of your other arguments. I mean, yeah. the criminalization of, of a big slice of society, yeah. uh, the racial issues. I think something like you know. Uh, Nine uh, percent of uh, drug use is uh, is by blacks. Twelve percent. Twelve, and, but something over twenty percent. Forty percent. Up to forty percent okay. of those arrested for drug offenses are black. Yeah. So, so the difference between twelve percent of drug users who are black uh, versus forty percent of those arrested for drug users be, use being black is massive. It's an enormous delta, and we'll get into that in our second column. I mean, in this first column, though, the the, the monetary issue. Drug law enforcement consumes more than half of all police resources nationwide, and that is in part uh, connected to the leads to morally wrong outcomes part because a lot of that is sort of back-ended, you know, the way that we use drug offenses to do policing of other kinds because we want to control the population. But just even if this is just the way that uh, internally police account for for them, things themselves, the idea that more than 50% of the money we spend on cops is going towards drug enforcement mm-hmm. is wild. It's completely insane. And yet, I think 
that is the fundamental problem with this discussion is that we always start here. And I really appreciate your nuance that you come at this from multiple angles and say, it's not just about the money. Even though I'm a libertarian, it's not just about the money. It is also about the outcomes. And it's also about the morally right or right. wrongness of the argument because most people get to the, the financial outcomes things and stop. That's that's as far as they go. There's a philosopher named Leo Strauss who was, who was a became famous um, in the uh, the 20th century. Um, he was, uh, became famous surrounding um, or, or following uh, the Nuremberg trials and um, the, uh, the, the banality of evil uh, 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 that we saw put on display when, you know, Nazi sort of uh, pencil pushers were, were up there uh, testifying about, right. about well, I, I, I wasn't actually killing anybody. I was just signing paperwork and writing out numbers and facts and figures. And so, uh, I, I'm, you know, I was just following orders. That led to a whole wave of uh, philosophers. And then the reaction to that uh, would be Leo Strauss's generation of philosophy. And Leo coined, um, or at least popularized, the, the term moral economism. In the same way you'd hear moral relativism or moral absolutism, he said moral economism is an appeal uh, of morality to the idea that the economy is morality, that we define what is right by what is good for the Dow Jones Industrial Index. And mm -hmm. that, I think, is the problem with deciding that pro uh, prohibitions on drugs are fiscally inefficient and therefore we shouldn't do it, is that you have to consider these other two columns, which we're going to get into very shortly as soon as we come back from this uh, very short ad break. Hey, America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again here on Too Many Lawyers, uh, joined by uh, Royal Oaks. I'm Connor Oaks. We're co-hosting this. Uh, if you know, uh, if you're listening this far, you know we were talking about how prohibition on drugs is fiscally inefficient, but then we raised the issue of, you know, there's more to it than that. And I think people get caught up on that. Do you feel, is it your feeling that people get kind of caught up on the money issue and then kind of ignore the rest and end up ships passing in the night? Or do you think people are generally sort of well-rounded enough to agree uh, uh, to, to talk about all of these? You know, Connor, I don't think most people get into political philosophy or, you know, libertarian uh, ideals. Uh, I, I think they react to, to sort of gut big picture issues. And when they hear how many billions of dollars we're spending on the drug war and they realize instinctively that it's just not working and they look back in their own experience or recent American history, prohibition, we poured so much energy into stopping people from drinking alcohol, for God's yeah. sake. And all we did was create Al Capone. Yeah. So the, the difficulty is, you know, it's funny, when you look back into history, in the 1800s and Civil War times, we didn't have these drug laws. Uh, morphine, opium, they were freely used by doctors. There were medical benefits to it, cocaine, uh, marijuana. Cocaine was part of Coca-Cola right. in the early 20th century. And then around 1915, uh, people got into power who said, you know what, uh, we're going to stop drinking and we're going to stop taking these drugs and mm -hmm. this is all going to be illegal. Well, they realized you know, 15, 20 years later, it was a total disaster when it came to alcohol. Right. But they didn't realize it was a disaster as to drugs. And as a result, the drug war has continued on. And now it shocked me, really, that Pete Buttigieg 
would come out and say, I want to legalize yeah. for possession everything, heroin, methamphetamines. I don't know if he's into you know, legalizing fentanyl patches too, but virtually everything. Now, that doesn't mean all drugs would be legalized. Or freely available. Right. Distribution, sale would still be criminalized. But he's saying nobody should ever go behind bars for using a drug. So that's think, the classic libertarian argument that he's pushing. I think it was a Hail Mary pass on his part to yes. somehow jump ahead of the Absolutely. other people ahead of him. But I mean, that, I think you're right. That, that, that As you pointed out, this doesn't mean every drug is going to be available at your local 7-Eleven. Prohibition prevents regulation, but it doesn't end consumption. That is the fundamental problem right. with prohibitions, is when the government says, it's banned, period, done, gone, it prevents the government from saying, from deciding things like, well, the alcohol, uh, the legal age for alcohol is 21, and we think it's responsible, or the legal age now for tobacco is 21, and we think it, it's responsible for adults to be able to make that sort of decision once they're old enough. Um, and then they start to regulate and say, well, we're going to regulate and make sure that the drugs are not dangerous. Um, at, in 1933, when Prohibition ended, state governments all over the country instantly started passing legislation. They started regulating the potency of alcohol that people were drinking, right. the quality, and the methods of sale. They made sure that people weren't buying it. Uh, did they go overboard? Did they create dry counties as an overreaction to this? And you know, infringe on people's ability to actually drink alcohol? Yeah, they did. But in many places, you ended up people with people not going blind from moonshine uh, as much, and people, you know, selling the uh, alcohol, not selling the alcohol to children, um, and selling it, you know, generally of being better quality because people got into this market. It was actually regulated by governments. And yes, of course, we can get back into the financial stuff and say it was taxed uh, and successful. The other aspect of this is drug paraphernalia uh, goes along with drugs. Yeah, your heroin's dangerous. Guess what also is dangerous? Dirty needles. And because drug paraphernalia is criminalized, if a law enforcement officer pulls you over and you've got a needle on you, that's drug paraphernalia, even if you don't have drugs. So the, the, the paraphernalia, the object, is also criminalized, which makes it scarce, unregulated, shared, and then you lead to epidemics of HIV. In New York City, more than 60% of intravenous drug users are HIV positive as the ACLU reports. By contrast, the figure of the amount of people uh, who are infected with HIV who are intravenous drug users is less than 1% in England where clean needles are distributed by the government. 60% of IV drug users have HIV in, in New York, less than 1% in Liverpool, England, and where they distribute these needles. These stats are so amazing and so they should be so persuasive, but it's kind of frustrating, Conrad. It doesn't seem as if they things have sunk in. I mean, the drug laws are so inconsistent with our government policy toward alcohol and tobacco. I mean, alcohol kills so many more people than marijuana, and yet it's freely available and legal to, to, to drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, aside from the civil rights issue that, that we can get into, that you know, it's a victimless crime, it's really nobody's business if you right. take drugs, the numbers are staggering. Alcohol kills uh, 88,000 people a year. Tobacco kills 480,000 people a year. Millions of hospitalizations. and But we don't put those people behind bars. We allow them to kill themselves because we're a free society. But for some reason, people can't let go. And obviously, they're starting to let go with respect to a handful of states legalizing marijuana. Yeah. But don't hold your breath for Mississippi and Alabama legalizing marijuana. Right. There are big chunks, swaths of the country, where it's just not going to happen. I really like that you bring up the fact that it's a victimless crime. That is an interesting characterization. 
and some people will argue with you on it, but the idea of you taking a substance that, you know, affects only your body generally, and you can talk about secondhand smoke, but, you know, there's no secondhand alcohol, and, uh, you know, unless we're really extrapolating out, outward, you know, the destruction of a family unit or something, right. but people consider generally consumption crimes, they call them victimless crimes. And the danger with victimless crimes, as long as we're using that categorization, is that they lead to unequal treatment and they lead to moralizing and stigmatizing. You have law enforcement who is empowered to uh, execute uh, the laws and to enforce the laws, but when you give them the power to police people based on victimless crimes, they're inevitably going to uh, bend and fold to the status quo of those who are rich and powerful and privileged to not get policed while those who are not have this extra policing applied to them for victimless crimes that are, where they, you know, aren't really hurting anybody else. And that just allows, it gives law enforcement so much power to flex and grow the, you know, the carceral state, as they describe it, and, and further and deepen biases. And that, of course, as we described, is leads to the idea of something like, as the ACLU reports, ACLU reports 12% of drug users being black, but 40% of those arrested for drug offenses being black. This extends, though, beyond just race. I mean, this is something that is you, a libertarian, should feel very strongly, I would guess, about, um, that, that prohibition has been used as a cover for expans expansions of the privacy-shredding power of law enforcement as well. The DEA was caught uh, in the last decade, and it only, it only came out um, about five, six years after it, it happened. This is a, a response to FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act uh, requests, um, that dug out, uh, Reuters reported, that the Department of uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, was caught invading Americans' privacy under the cover of drug investigations. So you would, uh, what would happen is law enforcement officers would go to the DEA and they would say, give me private personal information on people that you have collected in the course of drug enforcement uh, 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 actions, law enforcement pursuit of people based on drugs. They give them that information. And the DEA was caught training law enforcement uh, law enforcement agents to recreate a trail where they could justify how the information had come to them not from the DEA because if you went to the DEA those people would be protected by the 4th amendment the 4th amendment protects individuals from search and seizure from uh, by law enforcement, right? So law enforcement has to get evidence the right way or it gets excluded in your trial. Well, Say, the, the drug uh, war is big business, absolutely. both in the private sector and with the government. So as a little lawyer aside here in the Fourth Amendment insertion and seizure, as, as people probably, uh, people have a lot of misconceptions about how the Fourth Amendment works, but the idea being if a cop pulls you over because he doesn't like the cut of your jib, because he's racist and he doesn't like you, because he's sexist and he doesn't what like your gender. Part of the body is the jib, by the way. Well, it's uh, it's been cut off. It's no longer part of the body. It's oh, the cut okay. of the jib. Um, or or the law enforcement officer pulls you over because you're driving a blue car and he doesn't like blue cars. Whatever the bad reason that he pulled you over, if he then finds drugs... It'd be drugs, surprising if a cop didn't like a blue car. Wouldn't think, that yeah, be unusual? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it's a crypt territory, blood territory. I'm not sure which one's blue. I have no idea. So you if he pulls you over for a bad reason... And then he finds drugs on your person. Those, those drugs will be excluded. The exclusion of those drugs is the consequence of his abuse of his power. He has to have uh, a, a probable cause to pull you over, probable cause to believe that a, a, a crime has been committed. So if they don't have that, 
then the evidence will be excluded. And this is an example of how prohibition led to the Drug Enforcement Agency abusing its power by letting law enforcement officers create a fake record of how they got documents or, or papers or any sort of evidence and then used it against people in criminal trials, which is a horrifying and frightening and dystopian Kafka-esque outcome. Welcome to the Libertarian Party. There we are. I'm coming across the aisle. All right. Well, I'll, I'll become a Libertarian after our next quick ad break. I'll throw you out and we'll be right back after this. All right, welcome back, everybody, uh, to Too Many Lawyers with me, uh, Connor Oaks and uh, Royal Oaks, uh, the millennial progressive and the boomer libertarian, talking uh, about something we actually agree on this week. Um, it, it pretty much in complete alignment, although that you, you can agree on this topic of drug prohibition from multiple angles. As we talked about, one, the prohibition on, uh, causes fiscally inefficient outcomes. It also leads to morally wrong outcomes. And in this last section, we're going to talk about something where I think you and I might really agree, but maybe not, about how prohibition is just inherently morally wrong. Before we get to that, i got to throw in the example of Portugal. Yeah. Uh, Portugal in 2001 decriminalized all drugs. Mm -hmm. The Buttigieg approach. Yeah. Instead of jail in Portugal, if you are caught with drugs, you've got to meet with doctors and social workers and shrinks, and they push you toward rehab. Drug use went down across all age groups. Uh, you've got Three, three per million overdose deaths as opposed to 185 per million for the United States. HIV infections went down 94%. Similar experience in the Czech Republic. They tried the same thing. Uruguay uh, legalized marijuana in 2013 and decriminalized cocaine and heroin. Same kind of results. So why people don't recognize the success stories is a real mystery. Yeah, I mean... Those success stories not only do they reduce you know health out bad health outcomes, but they also uh, took power away from massive drug cartels. These the black markets that are created by prohibitions on substances like this put a, put people at risk and and kill people because there's so much money to be made in a black market substance that people uh, want so desperately like. You know, alcohol and drugs. Now, yeah, and by arresting the the growers, sort of the small time growers of right. marijuana, the government is actually protecting the cartels because only the biggies, the 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 uh, El Chapos, they've got the aircraft. They literally have troops. Yeah. They have fancy yeah. lawyers. Insane. They can survive mm -hmm. the government's regulation. It, it's like it, it, it is a lot like. Uh, Pepsi and Coke, who are battling it out. But guess what? Pepsi and Coke also have other competitors. They have small competitors. And the best way for Pepsi and Coke to choke out anybody who would try to become a third pillar of the soda market is to embrace government regulation uh, that ups health standards to an incredibly high level. Even if Pepsi and Coke were selling at a loss for years, they could do so and still survive just fine and compete with each other on that basis while choking out any minor uh, competitors. So these are all fiscal arguments for the ways that, uh, that uh, prohibitions uh, are a problem. But let's get to the final uh, pillar of this, that prohibition might itself be morally wrong for, for a couple of different reasons. One, let's start with something you don't hear, I think, enough. I think you don't hear about how the fact that prohibition became a replacement for government spending on things that the government actually has a responsibility on that it's neglecting because it just throws money into law enforcement and prohibition. Prohibition on drugs became a replacement for government spending on poverty, unemployment, failing infrastructure, 
public education, all of these major categories of, of government spending where the government has a responsibility to make the world a better place, to make its country a better place, and it's not doing that. And instead of doing that, it's throwing uh, the responsibility over to law enforcement and saying, well, well, you know, there's crime, and crime is what makes education bad because schools are filled with crime and drugs, and well, therefore we just need to put more cops in those schools. But it's such you, an easy answer. On the other hand, I mean, the political winds shift back and forth. If you look back over the last 80, 90 years of American political history, one thing has been very consistent, and that is the war on drugs. It wasn't mm -hmm. just Nancy Reagan, just say no, True. and Bill Bennett, the drug czar. Uh, every single administration yeah. has been strong on the war against drugs. But on the other issue you raise, it, it, some conservative administrations have said, you know, we think that we shouldn't be spending so much on, on whatever it is, infrastructure or, or various domestic policies. You remember Ronald Reagan, one of the reasons he got elected was he had this slogan. He said the, the five scariest words in the language are, uh, I'm with the government, I'm here to help. So every other administration or so wants to pull back on government spending, let the free market do its miraculous thing, so, I mean, it, I don't think it's always been the case that people have used, oh, we've got to spend billions on drugs as an excuse not to spend money on civil rights or domestic spending or welfare. It's kind of a function of what kind of president you've got. It's true. I mean, uh, you could you could also point out how, how uh, in many situations liberal uh, uh, liberal politicians um, and liberal political parties have, have said that uh, the that uh, the prohibition on drugs is is an excuse uh, to you know fuel the carceral state and fund private prisons and it's powered by you know corporate interests that make so much money off of putting people in jail and keeping them in jail. We have an enormous, incredible, unbelievably huge uh, population in the U.S. Um, and these are uh, of people who are incarcerated uh, for drug offenses and it makes, uh, as you said, it's big money. It's enormous amounts of money and you have to overcome those corporate interests in order to actually enact change. And so you're Right. Republicans, I'm sure, have sounded the alarm at certain points, and Democrats have certainly sounded the alarm at other points, and I'm sure libertarians have been sounding the alarm as, as much as possible. This is one of their sort of big-ticket items that actually, you know, they, they get a lot of po positive press on at different times from both sides. Overall, I think the moral argument, the, the idea that prohibitions on drugs are inherently morally wrong— I think that pillar is too often propped up by vague platitudes about the idea of, oh, freedom. We just want people to be able to do what they want with their own bodies. I think there are more moral arguments to be made than just that. Because I think we all get that, right? We, we understand that there are, are, you know, moral arguments about freedom. Well, we understand it, but people, it. we have a nanny state. I mean, let's face it, seatbelt laws. Um, theoretically, shouldn't you be able to, you know, drive off the cliff and, and kill yourself? Uh, whereas if you have the seatbelt on, maybe you emerge unhurt. And yet nobody seems to have a problem with seatbelt laws. Mm -hmm. We say, doggone it, it's just a minor thing, yeah. you know, buckle Seatbelts or helmets is another great example. Yeah. I, think, I think helmets And are it isn't a money situation because if you're not wearing your helmet, then you're going to be dead. If you right. wear your helmet, you've got a spinal cord injury, and the state is going to spend $20 million to keep you alive for the next 60 years. So it isn't that we are going to save money. Right. It's that we just want to help people. Well, let's use but well, what laws. about OSHA? You know, Why shouldn't we have all the warnings on the ladders? Right. Why shouldn't we penalize companies if they make unsafe products? So in that sense, you've got lots of sentiment for a nanny state, including, well, we don't want 
kids to be taking heroin. Right. We know best. Right. Buckle up and don't take heroin. So let's, what's the difference? Let's let's to play devil's advocate here and say uh, the other side of things. Let's use the example of helmets in the same way that they they're basically the same as seatbelt laws, right? Helmet laws. Um, uh, specifically uh, with regard to, uh, you could say motorcycles, um, but you can also say uh, snowboarding. Uh, anybody who's been on uh, the slope skiing or snowboarding in the last 15, 20 years has seen a radical shift. Uh, 15, 20 years ago, only dorks wore helmets, <laughs> and now basically everybody does. Right. And nobody has an exact easy answer for why, but this was a change that happened because— a lot of factors, but a lot public of people, education. Public education. Yeah, public education is a major factor, and a lot of people would say one of the most uh, influential factors was watching people in the Olympics and on the X Games. And the X Games in the Olympics said the cool our, kids do it. Yeah, our our athletes who are incredibly cool in the X Games or whatever, they're wearing helmets. Look at them, and they're you know doing amazing, awesome tricks. And the helmet became a signifier that I am gonna do awesome, extreme things instead of just. I'm a dork and worried. And that is a huge shift in public opinion. Right. How do you get that shift? Is you get spending of these organizations like the Olympics and the X Games and the government doing public education campaigns about helmets and showing good examples in public eye that lead to actual substantive change of the culture. So how do you get people to wear their seatbelts? You can have a law that makes sure that parents who don't want a ticket show their kids to put on a seatbelt. You can make sure that, you know, Public opinion is swayed and changed, and the world is made better by a law. So I'm not completely against the idea that you can change public opinion and change the world for the better by a, a prohibition on not wearing a helmet, for example. But it's, and, and that's why I'm I'm so stuck on the idea that people are are the only moral argument that you're giving for uh, for. Uh, uh, the end of prohibition of drugs is my freedom. Get off my lawn. Right. This is my area. I want to be able to do what I want with my body. What's there the are, alternative argument? The then? other uh, arguments are that prohibition is a uh, prohibition on drugs is a scapegoat, and we're 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 treating we're 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 allowing the government to to fall down in other areas when they should be saying, well, let's actually uh, address public education. Let's clean up inner city schools and not blame it on drugs, which is not the problem at all. It's that there's no money there and that you're, you're pouring half of our law enforcement budget into drugs when you could take all that money and put it yeah, into actually what you're, making public schools good. you're saying, aren't you venturing into kind of deep uh, political slash philosophical waters? Do you really expect the American public to to embrace what you're saying as opposed to just the thing that's hitting them in the that face, is, the number of opioid you're, deaths? You're, you have, you've done it. You've, you've beaten me to the punch. You're absolutely right. This is a problem of the human brain, and that's where I'm going with this whole thing. And that's why, frankly, I'm, I'm so glad we dealt with this topic in this podcast. I think that the drug war and the prohibition on drugs is the most obvious and clear-eyed example of how Occam's razor is complete BS and how the human brain is so seduced. So Occam's razor being the idea that the simplest explanation is exactly. often the accurate one. Yeah, so so Occam's razor colloquially is that the simplest answer is probably the best. Uh, but the, the actual Occam's razor is a little more complicated in philosophy, they say. Isn't that well, ironic? Ah, uh, you're right. Uh. So the actual Occam's razor says that the hypothesis that depends on the fewest assumptions is probably the best available hypothesis. So it's a little more complicated, but the idea is 
basically boils down to simpler equals better. But the idea, you know, say you had uh, you had a hypothesis. Well, I think that this uh, you know drug uh, has has uh, good outcomes, and so we'll try it on rats before a, a right. before a, a scientific experiment. And so you can't do that scientific experiment. So you have to you have to base your ju- your you know just on working off a couple of hypotheses, and you can't actually do the, the experiment because you ran out of money. Uh, and you're trying to analyze these uh, these different hypotheses. One that it will uh, it will uh, you know, create heart, uh, rats with healthier hearts, and one that will uh, create ha- rats with healthier livers. Well, if you need three assumptions about how the drug is going to work, well, I'll assume that the livers it's going to have this activated uh, feature and affect the rats' livers in this way, and that it also uh, won't have any side effects. And it also, and you have list off five other assumptions for the liver hypothesis, and then on the heart assumption, we have enough information to know that it would only take one leap of faith, one assumption, to get us to the fact that it would help rats' hearts. Go with the simpler explanation. That is an interesting and philosophically useful application of Occam's razor. But the simple boiled down version, that the simple simple answer is always the best, that, in my opinion, is actively wrong. Because the simple explanation is too sexy. Prohibition, too sexy. Law enforcement being thrown at the problem like a blunt force instrument, too sexy. Guns are sexy. Guys with guns are sexy. Write that down, everybody. Connor Oaks, 2020. (laughs) Guys with guns are sexy. It's too easy to say, we'll just throw law enforcement at every problem, and drugs will prohibit them across the board, and we'll use infinite money to solve all our problems. Human brains go, yeah, I can do that. I can rock that. I can wrap my mind around that. Human brains cannot say, how do I solve inner city schools being underfunded and you know producing bad outcomes? What if we just put more cops so, on, on the campus? So clearly, you just need to sit down with Donald Trump in the Oval Office and, and, and talk sense to him. Yeah, well, what we, what we really want to do is we want to listen to a 30-minute podcast and solve the drug war. So that is what we want I've, to do. I've got, a, I've got a quiz for you. This is a lightning round mar- okay, okay. marijuana quiz. Are you ready for this? Uh, what if I Who pass? Smokes? Is that bad? <laughs> Who smokes marijuana? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Um, first, would you say more men or more women smoke in ooh, America? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, in my my personal experience? No, not in your personal experience. I'm asking about America here. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, personal experience. I think men. You're right. 15% Ooh. of men smoke, only 9% of women. Wow, that's a big difference. Uh, race, white and non-white. Who smokes more marijuana, white folks or non-white folks? Definitely white. 14%, you're right, white, 9% non-white. About the same now, as the Now, here's a three-parter. Ideology, you've got your conservatives, your moderates, and your liberals. Who smokes more oh, among those three? Definitely liberals, right? You got it, 24%. Conservatives, 4%, one-sixth. So conservatives lie. Is moderates, 12%. <laughs> oh, no, these people oh, no. were told the answers totally are honest. confidential. Oh, yeah, for sure. Next, region <laughs> of the country. You've got east, midwest, south, and west. Where do they, where are they uh, lighten up the ganja most? Oh, Which region? East, California Midwest. Way. West. No, no, East is 15%. No. Midwest, 13 No, you're Down ruining. Down South, only 7%. You're ruining our street cred. We on the West Coast have to be the laid back only weed smokers. Only 6%. The what? West includes Utah, uh, Connor. Oh. Okay. Oh, okay. So now, All the right. f- finale uh, question here What percentage of American adults smokes marijuana? <sighs> 
How about this? How about you give me a percentage and I'll pick? I, I've over already on. given you a hint because fifteen percent men and nine percent women. So I'm thinking. Okay, it's okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, that's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, there's a lot of people who don't identify. Okay, uh, I'm gonna say it's exactly halfway. Between no, no, no. Women are fifty-one percent of the population, so it's a little closer to nine. So that's six percent between. So it'd be three, be twelve. I'm gonna say eleven point five. Yes, we're gonna round up twelve percent okay, the number, right. and you got it. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think we solved. The we problem did. I think thirty system. minutes of a podcast and we solved uh, the problem of drug legalization. What we really did, I think, is highlight the fact that humans are really susceptible to the easy, simple answer. And it, this is not a question that can be solved by an easy, simple answer. It's a, it's a question that needs to be delved into with the facts and the figures, but also with our moral judgment or intuition. We have to break down why we're doing what we're doing, what the right argument is going to be, even if it's the expensive argument. It might be the right answer. And so I think relying too much on the fiscal stuff uh, is really dangerous. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody, on this episode of Too Many Lawyers. And um, I'm really enjoying this sort of less uh, political, you know, day-to-day stuff and the bigger picture where we can zoom out and, and handle this stuff, too. So if you, uh, if you like these sort of zoomed-out episodes who are less about what's in the news and more about sort of bigger picture issues, let us know on uh, social media uh, and uh, email my dad's personal email. I'll read it off right now into the ca- – oh, no, probably you won't do that. Okay, fine. Maybe not. And I'm going to go get a shave with Occam's razor. Oh, cute. All right, see you folks next week. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 